we're gonna be jumping into Mark chapter four and five, so open your Bible up and we'll, we'll jump in. Um, maybe you're here today and you feel like you have hit a wall in your faith. Maybe you're here and you feel like you have been living on mission before in your life and you felt so passionate and full of the spirit and full of joy and hope, but you begin to hit a wall. And maybe that stems from the fact that you've begun to doubt whether God actually cares. Certain circumstances in your life have led you to question, does God actually care for me? Now I know that a lot of times you're in church, you're like, no, of course God cares. I just declare it in a song how great he is. The problem is a lot of times that lie goes beneath the surface to our hearts. And you begin to wonder, does God actually care about my heart, my soul, and my life? And that bleeds into everything else that we do. And a lot of times that begins with the problem of fear in our life. Now fear's a funny thing, isn't it? It really is a weird thing. Is all fear bad? I'd argue no. Uh, for those of you that have children, you know that fear can be a really good thing. Fear of heights keeps your seven-year-old boys alive, right? They might not know it totally yet, but, but it's a really healthy fear. When I was just beginning to date my wife, I was terrified, and it was really healthy to make sure I reined in all my quirky habits, right? It was a good place to be when I was pursuing her. Uh, fear of rotten food is a good fear. Fear of going too fast on the freeway is a good fear. Certain fear gives us guardrails in life. Um, I actually like to scare my friends. For those of the, my friends who work here, um, we have a thing where we're like, we hear someone coming, we'll like hide behind the corner, rah, and you freak them out. Um, I, don't, I don't hate that. I like to, to feel that moment. The problem is when I begin to feel out of control, that's when I begin to really, truly hate fear when you lose that grip on, can I control what's going on? And in a minute, we're gonna hear two incredible stories of people who felt terrified for their lives because they had zero control and they knew it. But before we jump in, I wanna tell a quick story about fear in my life. Is that okay? It's, it's a good one, you ready for this? So my wife and I have, are going on seven years. She's wonderful. This December, we'll be married seven years. But we were dating during my undergraduate. And so I'm at Moody Bible Institute in Spokane, Washington, and I had a really creative idea for a date night. And so rather than going to the movie theater and chilling there, I thought, why don't we go and pass out cupcakes to all the freshmen during their big paper end of the year thing? Um, the Old Testament paper was like the big paper at the end of your freshman year. And so I was like, hey babe, let's go pass out mini cupcakes and pray with all the freshmen. And so like, cool. And so we went and bought several dozen mini cupcakes, which are already a sad excuse for cupcakes, which is a sad excuse for cake, you know what I'm saying? So we bring out these cupcakes and we're like, hey, we bring it to all the freshman houses. We're praying for you. You can do it. We've been through it. One girl's like, I know I can do it. I'm so sorry. And like, she's like weeping. She's so thankful for us being there, loving on them. Um, great date night. We finish, put the cupcakes back in my house, hop in my little rickety pickup five-speed truck, pull up to a stop sign, get ready to bring her back to her apartment, and I look to my left, and the brightest light I've ever seen blazes me in the face. And it's not like the, hey pal, turn your brights off light, it's like the I am dazed, and I'm confused, and I'm almost dreaming state. You know what I'm talking about? It's like finding Nemo with a little fish, and he's like, oh, what is that? You know what I'm talking about, right? And you're totally just bewildered at what you're seeing. Katie screams, look out! And I look in front of me, and this SUV comes around the corner, and it's gonna hit me dead on in the front of my vehicle. And I'm like, did I roll into the traffic with my five-speed truck? Well, no, I put it in reverse, start backing up, look in my rearview mirror, and there is a vehicle pinned against my bumper on the backside. It's a cop car, lights are on. And I'm like, what have I gotten myself into? 
Next thing you know, do, 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 five other spotlights surround me. There are cops with guns drawn behind doors, police dogs at the end of their leashes, and they're screaming at me to put my hands up. This is the true story. I'm not making any of this up. This is easily the craziest thing that's ever happened to me in my life so far. I was terrified. I was so freaked out. I'm surrounded by cops everywhere. By the way, I've seen the show Cops, and I'm always like, bro, that guy could get out of there. Like, he just goes up the railing and over the roof. No way, man. When they surround you, you are donezos. But I'm sitting here terrified, and uh, Katie looks at me and is like, Andrew, what's going on? And this guy's like, hey, you put your hands up too. My wife's five foot even, and so she's just a little lower in the car. So she's like, ah, you know? And so the cop walks over to me, and I'm thinking, I have an expired license plate, which is not great, but that's not enough to get a whole arrest thing, right? Like, what is going on? This guy walks up with a gun drawing. He's like, open the door, put, keep your hands up. I open the door, start walking, like, get over here, Jeff. And I'm like, what? And he goes, Jeff, you're Jeff, right? And I'm like, bro, my name is Andrew Sturkin. I'm a moody Bible student. I live in the house right there. He goes, bro, you look just like someone we've got a warrant to arrest. And I'm like, you've gotta be kidding me. Do I look like this guy so much that you decided to do a fake sting operation on me? I was terrified. I was so scared. And then we laughed about it for like the whole rest of the night. My heart didn't stop racing. And I was like, fellas, this is the best rush I've had in a long time. Let's do this again next week. Katie's like, get back in the truck. Stop talking. And I'm just like running my mouth. I'm just feeling alive in this moment. But fear is a funny thing. But there are times in our life when fear has no place in our lives because it brings us to a place of not trusting Jesus, which leads us to not be on mission. So before we look at the text, let's pray together, okay? Lord Jesus, we love you. And we ask for you to speak right now. We ask that your word would move. We ask for every person listening that their hearts would be challenged and transformed, become more like your son. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help me to say only what you'd have me say. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so chapter four of Mark begins with Jesus teaching a crowd, and he's in a boat because there's such a large crowd that they're pressing against the waters. He's sitting in the front of the boat, and he's teaching this large crowd. That's chapter four, verse one and two. Skip down to verse 33, and it's kind of a summary of the entire chapter. It says this, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. Now, how are they able to hear it? Through parables and stories. They're not getting it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. On that day, same day, after a long sermon, and by the way, we all love a long sermon, but it can be exhausting after a really long sermon, especially an all-day sermon. Can you imagine like a preach-a-thon? I'd be like, whoo, okay, enough conviction, I need a break. You know what I'm saying? I need a nap. So it's nighttime, they've been hearing a sermon all day. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, meaning he's in the boat already, he's preaching, they just take off, and Jesus is still in the boat. And other boats were there with him. By the way, a detail I didn't notice before, there are other boats there. I wonder how they did in the storm. It's curious, right? And so, um, what lake are they in? What's going on with the boats? Look at the, look at the screens for a minute. And by the way, if you're watching live, just Google search Sea of Galilee because we don't have it for you. But this is a Google Maps. This is a Google Earth, actually, to show that this is a real place. Oftentimes, Bible Maps, we kind of get this feel that it just feels very Christianese. This is real geography, real places. And so, there's Florida, all the way over. There's Africa, Asia, South America. We're gonna zoom into the next one. 
Look closer, there's Africa, Asia again. Zoom in a little bit more, and boom, there is ancient Israel. The little dot in the center is where we're gonna be going next. Check out the next screen, and that's closer to a Christian map. You see the Decapolis? That's called the 10 cities, Deca 10, Paulus' city. It's the 10 cities in this Roman legion, and it was roughly a group of 10 cities that the Romans had. And it's primarily on the eastern side of the Lake of Galilee. Zoom in one more time. Uh, this is called the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of a misnomer. It's actually a freshwater lake. And so it's called the Sea of Galilee. That's great, but it's freshwater. It's about 700 feet deep at its deepest point, and it's surrounded by mountains around the entire area. And it's still known today to have giant storms swoop in out of nowhere with no preparation. By the way, those of you that want to go to Israel in the future, you probably get a chance to see this. Many of you who have gone to Israel get a chance to see this. It's super, super cool. The lake isn't that big. You can take a bike ride around it in just a few hours. It's actually not that huge, um, but it's a real place. And we can show the next slide now. This is the trip that Jesus is gonna take from the west side, the Jewish side, to the east side, which is the Gentile side, to where he's gonna meet another character in the second half of today's teaching. And so he hops in the boat, and he's like, take me to the other side. Y'all with me? Excellent, okay, verse 37. And a great windstorm arose. The word great in the Greek is mega, a mega windstorm. In other places in ancient literature, the great windstorm can refer to a hurricane. This is a huge, crazy windstorm. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. Of the disciples, you got four guaranteed that were expert fishermen that could handle stuff like this, and they are terrified for their lives. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, really quick, there's a hyperlink that Mark has in this passage when he says, do you not care that we are perishing? That word perishing is the same word that's used when another prophet fell asleep in the Old Testament in the book of Jonah. When Jonah fell asleep on a cushion in the stern, the captain woke him up and said, maybe pray to your God, because we're gonna drown. We're all going to perish. And Jonah is asleep. And you know the story. They pick up Jonah, throw him into the water. The moment that his body submerges under the water, the storm ceases because only God can calm a storm. And in this moment, they're beginning to connect. Who is this Jesus, right? You see the parallel here? We are going to perish. Now, another interesting part here is, do you not care that we are perishing what the disciples ask him? In English, it's very fancy, and it's a really good translation, but in the original, it's a little bit more blunt. It's a little bit more panicky, it's a little more rude. Like, Jesus, don't you care about us? We are going to drown. What are you doing? I find it really fascinating that Jesus could have calmed the storm at any time. As a matter of fact, he could have calmed the storm before they even got in the boat. He could have said, let's do uh, better weather conditions, right? Let's get a sail across fast. In other parts of scriptures, he hops into a boat and they appear at the very end, almost like a teleportation. He is the master of the wind and waves. He can do whatever he wants. So why does he allow this storm? The text doesn't say, and so we shouldn't either. Is it to build up his disciples' faith? Maybe. But he's asleep. By the way, I love it. So many pastors, well-meaning pastors, and they're right, say, hey, no matter what the storm is in your life, remember, Jesus is in the boat. And that's a good anecdote. The problem is, he's asleep in the boat. <laughs> 
You know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, that's, that's wonderful. He's in the boat, but he's knocked out unconscious, dreaming about better days, right? Jesus is, is Jesus asleep in your boat right now, in your life? <laughs> no, he's, he's there and he cares. The disciples say, don't you care that we are perishing? Now this lie is insidious um, to the core. Do you not care that we are perishing? Maybe you believe this lie. The disciples do the right thing, by the way, which is to cry out, but they do it in the wrong way, which is questioning Jesus' love for them. He wants us to cry out, desperately like little infants crying out. In 2014, Dr. Fox, a psychologist, went to Romania to an orphanage. When he got there, he was shocked, not by the lack of nutrients or the dirty diapers or anything wrong with the place. He was shocked walking in to see a bunch of babies in a room with dead silence. You see, in this particular orphanage, the babies were never held after they were born. They were placed in the crib and they'd cry out and cry out and cry out. They were fed like clockwork, they were wiped like clockwork, they were taken care of, all their needs were met, but they stopped crying out because they knew they weren't being heard. It's horrifying, absolutely horrifying. The psychological effect that can have on, a, on an infant to not be held and loved. I would argue a lot of us act the same way towards God. That we think God's gonna do what he's gonna do. You treat God more like the force in Star Wars. You treat God like Plato's God, right? Omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, but not personal. And so you don't cry out because you don't think that he cares. God's gonna do what he's gonna do anyway, so why bother? Or maybe you're on the other side and you think, no, God only responds to me when I cry out, which then implies that the only reason that God ever answers prayer is based on our faith, which is also a very dangerous lie as well. We should cry out, God is sovereign. These two meet in the middle in a place where I say, God doesn't fit in your box. Jesus does not fit in your box. Why did he allow the storm to come in the first place? Because he doesn't fit in your box. Because he's got something bigger going on that we cannot understand. To imply that only when we cry out to God will he act says a very deep lie that God is not wise or compassionate on his own. That God is just some vending machine God, some pinata God that you hit enough times and candy falls out. But the truth is that God does care, but he desperately wants us to cry out because we desperately need him. You see the tension here? And so the disciples do the right thing in the wrong way and they cry out. Look what Jesus says to them, by the way. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. Don't say another word. Be quiet, shut your mouth. And the wind, it ceased. And there was great calm. Now there's great calm on the sea, but look what happens to the calm in the disciples' hearts. It's still not there. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Don't you trust yet? And they were filled with great fear, mega fear again, not, not the wind and waves. And they said to one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. See, a lot of these guys, they grew up in their Sunday schools and they knew that God calms storms. And Jesus just spoke words and shut the wind up. And they are bewildered. Who then is this 
By the way, I think one of the best arguments for the divinity of Jesus is not that he had to walk around and say, hey guys, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God all the time. I'd argue when he does God's stuff that shows who he is. He says, shut up wind and it shuts up. He acts just like Yahweh of the Old Testament. I'd actually argue that if Jesus was insecure and had to prove his divinity constantly, I'd actually argue against it and not for it. This is God in the flesh. The disciples are terrified. By the way, when I was a kid growing up, there's a flannel graph. Anybody flannel graph people? You know what I'm talking about? The felt boards with like little cutouts, those things, okay? Anybody have no idea what I'm talking about? God bless you guys, I'm sorry. You're missing out on, on some beautiful 90s moments. So, and my flannel graph teaching, this little board, there's a cutout of Jesus, and there's a cutout of the waves and the boats, and there's like storm clouds and thunder and lightning, and then Jesus says, peace be still. And then my grandma would move the top layer and put sunshine and rainbows on top. And the disciples were like, wow, great. It's not what happened. It's still nighttime. Do you notice this? It's still night. It's been a long day. They're in the middle of the sea, and Jesus says, peace be still. And now the disciples are terrified, sitting in a boat, surrounding a darkness, and they are cold, and they are wet, and they still have water, and Jesus is there, and they're like, who is this? I imagine that they are like, I cannot wait to get out of this boat, into some comfy clothes, and into bed. I just heard the longest sermon of my life, and then now I'm sitting here in this cold boat, I'm exhausted, get me into my pajamas and into bed. They're like land, sweet land, you can't come soon enough. It's kind of like when you finish that really turbulent flight and you step down onto dry land for the moment, you're like, I'm gonna make it, I survived. Or you have that really bumpy boat ride and you go on the dock for the first moment and that security and peace. Like parents, when you close the door in your three-year-old's room and it clicks and they're asleep and you can walk away in peace, amen? And you're like, it worked and you, your hope that it doesn't come back. Well, the disciples are so eager for land until they find out what's gonna meet them on the shore. Remember, when Mark wrote this, there were no verse numbers or chapter titles or anything, um, and so this story connects directly into the next one, chapter five, verse one. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. That's uh, Christianese for a demon, a spiritual being that was inhabiting him. Um, and for those of you that are intellectuals here that you might wanna doubt it and say, this is probably schizophrenia, this is probably some multiple personality disorder, this is probably X, Y, Z, I would encourage you and implore you not to dismiss this just because it doesn't fit in your naturalistic worldview, okay? Most of the world historically has been very spiritual and aware of the supernatural, and I think a lot of Americans have a lot of intellectual snobbery to say that this stuff doesn't happen. I'd also go so far as to say that you find out in a minute when the pigs rush down the bank that this is not just a fairy tale, this is not just a mental illness, this is a demonic attack. Here's what happens. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit, out of the tombs. It's just daybreak, can you imagine how creepy this is? There's dead bodies everywhere. It's the Greek side, not the Jewish side. It's unclean everywhere. And now this man approaches them. And let's get a description of the man. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain. He's unbound. Totally out of control. For he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Not even the baddest dude in the planet could pin him down anymore. 
Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. We find out later this guy actually is also bum naked because he has clothes on later. This man is a naked, bloody guy running around, screaming and howling at the moon at night, running through the tombs. This is a horror story. The disciples are happy to get out of the boat and then this man, this monster of a man meets them and begins running at them. Can you imagine the terror in your heart at this point? What a day. <laughs> Peter looks back and thinks, man, could it get any crazier? And when naked bloody guy saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, use your imagination here. He said, what have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God. I gotta pause here. The disciples are asking in the boat, who then is this that calms the sea? And the demon-possessed guy says, Jesus, son of the most high God. Do you notice that the demons have a better theology of Jesus than the disciples do at this point? Wild, wild. He says, I lost my spot. He says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And he is, I adjure you by God. He's trying to claim authority over Jesus by saying, I adjure you by your authority, God. Do not torment me. Do not torment me. What an ironic statement for a guy who just possessed a man and tormented a man for years and years and years, right? These demons are torturing a guy and they're like, hey, don't, don't torture us, please. Have a double standard, Jesus. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? Now notice Jesus is not trying to bind the demon with a name. That's all a faulty view of, of demonic forces. Well, we don't do this either. This is Jesus doing it. He's just trying to get more information on what's going on. And he says, what's your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Notice how it went from singular to plural. Spooky, for we are many, coming out of one man's mouth, we are many. Now, a legion is between four to 6,000 troops in the Roman military uh, infrastructure. It's a lot. At the same time, we know that Satan's the father of lies, so these demons could be just lying to Jesus. Why would, why would he trust what a demon says, right? So we don't know. There's a lot of pigs that are gonna go in a second, but um, there's a lot of demons in this guy. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, what do you think Jesus is gonna do? Here's this man who's completely covered in demons, and he says, hey, don't send them out of the region. I, I think if I'm Jesus, I'd be like, no, you're going to hell. Like, let's go, game over. What does Jesus do? He doesn't do that, because Jesus doesn't fit in our box. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. Let's pause for just one more second. Aren't we thankful that we live in the new covenant now? That, that, we're, that we're not having to worry about pork issues. Like, I love pigs next to my hash browns and my eggs. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I love that we get to have bacon. And uh, by the way, this is probably a huge herd of pigs built for the Roman military to feed them bacon on their, uh, the war-torn travels. Um, by the way, did you know that in, in the Bahamas, there's something called Pig Beach? Did you know this? This is wild. I read this this last week and I'm like, this is crazy. They've got a bunch of pigs that are wild pigs that you can swim with on a Bahama beach. Not my idea of a vacation, <laughs> but I'm not gonna judge. If you wanna go swim with pigs on your, your free time, you go for it. 
But pigs can swim, interesting fact. I had no idea, pigs are able to, to swim. They're little swimmers. Verse 12, and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. He gave them permission. Why does Jesus listen to the demons? I don't know. And the unclean spirits came out and they entered the pigs. And the herd, by the way, I was talking to my wife about this recently. She gave me permission to share this. And I was talking about a herd of pigs coming down the thing. And she's like, can you imagine a whole flock of pigs jumping off a cliff? I'm like, a, a flock? <laughs> Excuse me? A flock of birds, a pride of lions, a murder of crows, but not a flock of pigs, girl. Come on, they're not flying. We laughed for a long time. I thought it was cute. Um, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The word drowned is a little ambiguous, but in the original it is they were drowned. They were being drowned in the sea. Pigs can swim. This was a horrific scene of demonic forces drowning animals. Now, I don't think that it's just Mark trying to share this detail just to make everyone like spooked out. I actually would argue that he was trying to show how tormented this man was before he met Jesus. This man that had a whole legion of demons inside of him, torturing him, cutting himself, covered in fecal matter, and eating whatever he could get his hands on to survive. He had thousands of demons, and he was in torment. And Jesus freed him. He unbound him. 14, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed in his right mind and they were afraid. They're afraid, they're freaked out. They walk up and see this guy who ordinarily was the one that haunted their nights, screaming and crying in the moonlight on the mountains and in the tombs, cutting himself. And now they see this guy clothed in his right mind talking to Jesus. Can you imagine how this guy must feel. The desperation to wanna to be with Jesus, to get to know Jesus, who was this man that had just freed him from being absolutely dominated by spiritual forces? It's unbelievable. Can you imagine the thankfulness? I bet he had zero doubt that Jesus cared for him. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So first the demons begged to stay in their region. Jesus says yes, and now they're begging Jesus to leave the region. And what does Jesus say to them now? He says yes. It's bonkers, I don't know why Jesus listens to these people, but he does. He respects them enough to say, if you want me to leave, I will leave. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Now look who's doing the begging. This man saying, Jesus, can I come with you? Can I follow you and be your disciple? Can I stay with you? Wouldn't you wanna be with Jesus after you had that encounter? I would. And frankly, if I'm writing the book of Mark, I think that I would be like, yeah, 13th disciple, great candidate. This guy's gonna go across the lake again with Jesus. He's gonna learn the law. He's gonna understand the covenants. He's gonna be a great missionary. And then at this point, 
he can go and be the 13th disciple and tell everybody what Jesus had done for him. You know, you've got Judas, so-so, you got Doubting Thomas, but naked bloody guy, he can give a testimony. I mean, he's like, yo, I was totally dominated by spiritual forces, but Jesus saved me, pay attention to him, he's the Messiah, he's awesome. I would totally be down for that. But Jesus says, no. The one person in the story that Jesus denies, by the way, is the follower of Jesus. Interesting, right? Why does Jesus say no to him when he listens to demons and the shepherds? Why does he say no to him? Because Jesus doesn't fit in your box. Because Jesus' plans for this guy are bigger than the plans that he had for himself. Look what happens. And he did not permit him, but he said to him, go home to your friends, your family, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Go to your people and tell everybody how much mercy the Lord has had on you. It'd be really impractical if all of us went to seminary and became pastors and missionaries, wouldn't it? Like that'd be great, but it'd be really impractical because we need to reach your people for Christ. Your coworkers, your friends, your neighbors, and that's exactly what this man does. And I actually believe he succeeded. The text doesn't tell us exactly, but if you skip ahead to Mark chapter five and six and seven, Jesus feeds uh, 4,000 people in Tyre and Sidon, which is in the Decapolis, which is on the eastern side of the lake. This man had gone around telling everybody about this one Jesus and the mercy they'd had on him. So when Jesus shows up, there's already a crowd ready to go. He is the first Gentile missionary sharing the faith. What a beautiful thing. And so he didn't fit in, in, in Jesus' box. He, he didn't fit Jesus in his box to say, I'm gonna come with you. But Jesus says, I got a bigger plan for you than I have for myself. Go home to your friends and family. Tell them what the Lord has done for you. And that he, he's had mercy on you. He's cared for you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everybody marveled. Everybody marveled. When Peter and the disciples cried out and says, don't you care that we are drowning? They were questioning God's goodness. Look what happens in 1 Peter chapter five. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You catch that? It's the same exact words. He says to Jesus in the boat, where are you? Do you care for me? We're drowning and skip a few years and a little bit of maturing and a little bit of walking with Jesus and Peter's preaching saying, cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The question had been uprooted out of his life. He knew for certain that God cared for him. Another way to translate this is to say, make him responsible for all of your worries. Hand over the keys of your issues and your challenges and give it to Jesus because he cares for you. I think a lot of us have a desire, just like the man who had been healed, to live on mission for Jesus. We wanna be effective. We wanna go out and reach the world for Jesus. The problem, though, oftentimes, is that we begin to start living in sin or we start to doubt the goodness of God. We start to live bound. Before you know it, we're in this place in, in church leadership where we're like, man, I really, I felt on fire for you at one time, but I don't feel that anymore, and I feel like I'm hitting a wall, and I'm not even sure that you care about me because X, Y, and Z happened. And before you know it, you're sitting in this very stagnant place, 
in your faith. And it is the most challenging thing to get out of. And I would argue these two stories back to back is Mark's way of saying the solution to experiencing freedom in Christ. Notice how it goes. The disciples on the one hand were terrified in the boat and they said, don't you care? Later on we find out that God does care. Naked bloody guy knew for certain that God cared for him. He knew for certain and then it brought him to live on mission. And I would argue that some of us need to retrace our steps and go back and experience the freedom that comes in Christ. And where does that begin? It begins with crying out desperately for God. Too often we have this thing of pride in our life where we're like, man, I'm really thankful that Jesus did all the work to save me by grace through faith. All I did is cry out for him and he saved me. But then in my sanctification process moving forward, every single step of the way, I'm responsible for my spiritual growth. And you say, I can handle it, I can bear this burden alone, when I would argue that you need to continually be coming back and crying out and being needy and needing the presence of God in your life. Cry out desperately asking God to bring healing and hope in your life. And you know what happens when you do that? You begin to experience the presence of God in a unique way, and you begin to know that he cares, even in the midst of pain. Let me give you an example of my own life. In 2020, a lot of us had a really rough year. We did as well. My wife and I walked through three miscarriages, and it was heart-wrenching and terrible. I'm not saying it just to say it, I'm saying it for this reason. In those moments when I was hurting deeply, I realized later that I was beginning to question God's goodness in my life. Not in my head, no, Satan is far too clever than to let you believe a complete lie in your brain, but I started to believe in my heart that God didn't actually care about me, that God didn't really care about my pain. Maybe I even believed a lie that because I'm trying to do my life for the Lord so passionately that he owed me something. If I'm honest, that's where I was at then I realized in my heart of hearts that God doesn't fit in my box, that I don't get to tell God how my life's gonna go, that the storm may come or go, and he may comment on my timeline or not, but I need to trust that he cares, and I need to cry out to him. I wanna challenge you, no matter what storm is going on in your life, to cry out, because when you cry out to God, you experience his presence, you get rid of those demonic lies in your life that God doesn't care for you, you recognize that he does care for you, and that frees you to be unbound when you know the love of God in your life. And that is what empowers you to be on mission, just like the demoniac in the Decapolis, to reach thousands for Christ. But the problem is we get stuck up in these steps. We say to people all the time, go reach your coworkers for Christ. Go be obedient. Go, 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 do this. But we forget the motivation behind it. See, the scripture writers are saying these things with the motivation they encountered the living God. They knew for certain all the motivation they needed to be obedient. But sometimes we shortcut that in Christianity. We wanna get the quick fix, so we try to act obedient. And acting obedient will never really do anything effective. It's understanding the reason behind it, the indicative behind the imperative. You track me what I'm saying? And so I would encourage you, you need to meditate on God's care for you. And you need to cry out because that's what's gonna transform your heart and then bring you on mission to be effective in this world. Maybe you're here today and you are questioning God's goodness. Welcome to the club. Life is hard and storms are real. And if you're not in one now, you will be someday. We all know that. But God's goodness remains the same. He is beyond our box. He may 
calm the storm on your timeline? He may not, but he is good either way. Do you trust him? Why do you fear, is what Jesus asks his disciples. The solution, regardless, no matter where you're at on the spectrum, is to cry out. And I wanna challenge you, maybe you're here and you're like, I don't wanna cry out, I've been saved, I'm doing just fine. Well, just fine is not good enough. Cry out to your God who loves you to pieces, who's got a better vision for your life than you have for yourself. Cry out. Psalm 107, verses 10 to 16, are some of my favorite verses in the whole world, and check it out what they say. Psalm 107, verse 10 says this. Some people, they sat in darkness and in the shadow of death. They were prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God, and they spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Let's pause. Some people are in this story this writer's talking about. They're in darkness and the shadow of death. They are prisoners, they're in affliction, and they are in irons. They are, they're trapped up in handcuffs. You, you, you envisioning what the psalmist is saying here? They are totally bound. And they are living in this situation. Why? Because, it says, they spurned the counsel of the Most High. They rebelled against God's words. God says, go left. They went right. He said, trust me. They said, no. They said, forget you. I don't trust you. They went their own way. And so in this moment, they are bound because of the consequences of their own action. And by the way, I would argue that the entire human race is born into this situation, and many of us step back into it every time that we begin to sin. You begin to live in bondage once again. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. What's the solution, folks, when you're living in bondage? Cry out, check it out. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness in the shadow of death and he burst their bonds apart. He comes in and he smashes the handcuffs and brings freedom. He brings hope. He says to the demon-possessed guy, go and be freed and go on mission. He says to the disciples, I care for you. They lived on freedom because they cried out and they knew the goodness of God. But it goes on. Let them thank the Lord. This is the reaction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works the children of man. Last verse. For he shatters, not just handcuffs, but the doors of bronze. He cuts into bars of iron. Amen. These homies down here look like they're behind prison walls. This is not just handcuffs walking around out, out on bail. These are people that are in the dungeon, trapped beyond all repair. You fill in the blank with whatever this looks like for you, man. This could be the person that is so far gone down the rabbit hole they feel there's no freedom. Jesus is coming to bring freedom for the captives. And I encourage you, he cares for your heart. So cry out to him. Forget your pride. Life is worth living today. <laughs>